Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I have to be honest, when we talked about uh, that we're going to be going through marriage tonight, not a single person told me how excited they were to hear that. Everybody groaned. So I don't know what that means. So we're going to talk about marriage tonight. We're going to do, hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, verses 1 through 9. Now, disclaimer on marriage. Marriage is one of the most difficult topics to talk about in the entire Bible for a couple of different reasons. One of them is the vastness of marriage. Marriage is covered in Genesis and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and in 1 Peter and Matthew. It just goes on and on. And there's so many situations with marriage. The Bible talks about what happens if you're married to a non-believer. What happens if there's adultery in the marriage? What happens in divorce? What happens in this? To cover marriage completely, you can't do it in 25 minutes on a Wednesday. So the way we're handling marriage here tonight is we're going to just do what it says here in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 9. Now, obviously, that means there's going to be a lot of marital situations that are not going to be covered here tonight. And it's not because we're obviously skipping over those things. But to cover what is just here, this is what the Lord gave Peter to write, and this is what we're going to talk about here tonight. Now, if you're not married, this doesn't mean that you can't get anything out of this lesson, because a lot of what marriage is is just showing Christian love and respect to everybody. If you look at our key passage here, and you know when we teach, we try to find the key passage. The key passage is actually found in verses 8 and 9. It says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Now, obviously, we've done a lot of marriage counseling out here at church. And generally speaking, when people come into my office and they start saying they're having difficulties in the marriage, one of the first questions I like to ask them is, how's your personal walk going? Generally, the answer is, not real good. And I usually say, well, you know what? If the husband's not loving his wife as Christ loved the church, you know, if the wife is not respecting, honoring, and submitting unto her husband, marriage probably isn't going to work. It's a proverbial square peg and round hole type thing. So that's why this verse right here is so important, because one of the things I always like to remind people, and you see that first reminder there under the key passage, is before your husband and wife, your brother and sister in Christ. And so therefore, as brothers and sisters in Christ, you wouldn't resort to yelling and screaming and throwing and hitting and all that other type of stuff, because... That's not what brothers and sisters in Christ do. I wouldn't expect here at church on a Wednesday night someone you don't really know that well just for you all of a sudden to start screaming at him and yelling at him and say, you don't love me because there's not a relationship there. As brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to remember that more than anything, you are children of the Father, and as children of the Father, there's sort of be a certain way that you respect and love each other. And that's why verses 8 and 9 are so important because in the middle of a bad marriage, it is really hard to remember, verse 8, that I'm supposed to be one mind with my spouse. I'm supposed to have compassion. I'm supposed to love unconditionally. I'm supposed to be tenderhearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil. On anybody that's been married here, you know that sometimes in marriage how immature you can get. And it's difficult for me because I'm going to be honest here. I'm an imperfect man in an imperfect marriage trying to talk about the perfect idea of what marriage is. There's been times in Donna Mine's marriage where I've stopped and I've said to her, I said, I have to come to you and apologize. I'm embarrassed as a husband. I'm embarrassed as a pastor. I'm embarrassed as a father. I can't believe we acted this way. Because why? We jumped to verse 9. We return evil for evil. That's the way you want to be. That's the way I'm going to be. You start overlooking over things, and you start overreacting, and you get really thin-skinned, and it's amazing that things I could say to Dawn that would bother her that if I'd say to someone else wouldn't bother them. Or if Dawn says it to me, it gets me all riled up and upset. Or if you said it to me, I could let it go. It's amazing how in marriage we become so thin-skinned and so cold-hearted, but really we need to be very thick-skinned and very soft-hearted towards one another. And so we're going to talk about marriage tonight. It's kind of a deep subject for a Wednesday. Generally, Wednesdays are a little more Bible study-ish. And so I know some of you came in here, and it's been a long day, and you're thinking, oh, great. So with that being said, 
There's our intro. I just want to share this with you. Talk about marriages and how interesting it can be. Dawn and I will be married 16 years this year. And she came home yesterday, and I told her I was going to bring this up. And she bought me deodorant. Now, there's a point to this. So there's a point. And so this is deodorant she bought me. Right guard, total defense five, power stripe, magnetic. They said she got it because she liked the way it smelled. And I looked, and they said, okay, this is nice. And at top, it says, oh, wow, it says new, attraction enhancing with pheromones. That's what it says. And I'm not kidding. Attraction enhancing with pheromones. So I don't know if, if the spark in our marriage is dying and she's using this to bring it back, or I don't know exactly for sure what that means. But I told her, I said, I'm going to start out the message with that. So keep dawning me in prayer. I, I wanted to wear it tonight, but I was afraid you women would just go nuts, you know. Yeah, surely. <laughs> Where'd she get it? Yeah, that's great. Walmart. You know, I, I haven't used it. If any guy wants to come up here... What is, what is lathery up in it? Usually I just coat myself in deer urine for some reason. I use usually that, that works for hunters. but So that's a look into the marriage of the Irvins. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, that's, that's women. Now, I have to be honest with you here. There's a lot given to women here. They get six verses of this, so the husbands only get one in verse 7. Now, if you look throughout the rest of the Bible, men have more of a spiritual responsibility in marriage than, than women. This is one thing I always say. Men, 90% of this direction, the spiritual direction of marriage falls on your shoulders. You're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're called to set the spiritual example. And this is not even in marriage. This is just in life. God has said we need to be witnesses in all we do and say. Now, women, there's a verse I like to use. It's in Proverbs. It's Proverbs 14.1. It says, a wise woman builds up her house, a foolish one tears it down. This is what I've noticed in counseling. This is what I've noticed in my own marriage. Spiritually, if the marriage is not strong, nine times out of ten, it's usually the husband's fault. If the marriage is usually full of a lot of anger and bitterness and touchiness, that's usually the woman's fault. Because the woman is usually reacting to what the guy's not doing, very simply put. And so when I see these verses here, it's really easy to look at these verses and say, well, God's really getting on the women. Just trust me. If you would study Ephesians, if you study Corinthians and Matthew and the other ones, God gets on the men more than he gets on the women. But the first thing you see here in verse 1 is, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And as soon as you hear that word submissive, people just start getting really in a tizzy about that word. They really do. And it's fascinating. I've had over the years very godly women come up to me quietly in the back of the church and say, Pray for me in my marriage. And I'm like, What? I, you guys look like everything is going good. She goes, Everything is going good. She goes, But I struggle with submitting. You have to remember, submission is part of the curse. I mean, it really is. If you go back and look in Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse is this idea of submission. Men are cursed with weeds in the field. This concept of work and this concept of the burden that men carry, this idea of they have to provide for the family and work, etc. The sweat and toil, that's part of the thing that the men are cursed with. Part of the things that women are cursed with is this idea of submission. We've joked about this before. Part of the curse for the women is men. I mean, that's just part of the curse. And so when women come to me and say, I really struggle with submission, I usually take them to Genesis 3 and say, yeah, you do. Because no one wants to submit under somebody else, especially when you think of what that word means. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? 
Submission is not a dirty word in any way. And this is why we put this example first. Jesus set the example of submission. This same word here, for be submissive in verse 1, is the exact same word in these other passages. It's just translated subject, etc. In Luke 2.51, if you look at your sheets, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents. If you look in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Jesus submitted himself under the will of God the Father. So if Jesus didn't have a problem submitting to his earthly parents, if Jesus didn't have a problem submitting to his heavenly Father, he set the example to say, this is not not bad. Because what happens is when you think of submission, some people get this idea of what this means, the man is the king of the castle, he just sits there and just tells the woman what to do, and she just has to obey, and that's just the complete wrong definition of what submission is in any way whatsoever. It is not what it is, and I cannot stress that to you enough. That is not the way it is. In fact, one of the things that we like to do in premarital counseling is when we get to God's creation of woman, woman is created out of the rib, and one of the questions I always ask the couple getting married is why do you think it's the rib? The rib shows equality, the heart. If it was created out of the head, it would show that woman's over the man. If it was created out of the foot of the bone, it would show that man's over the woman. It's out of the rib. There shows an equality there. And one of the problems you see is when this man gets this power trip, think that he's better than a woman. No. But the way things work, and you guys see this at where you work, you guys see this if you've ever served in the military or anything, if you ever have a group, you need to have somebody be in charge of that group. It doesn't mean that that person in charge is better. You guys probably all have a boss that you work for. It doesn't make your boss better than you in any way whatsoever. You don't curtsy or bow in front of the person. You realize when it comes to that workplace that someone has to make the decision, someone has to make the call in some of those situations, and that's what it comes down here to marriage. Dawn and I are equals. The same Holy Spirit that lives inside of me lives inside of my wife. But when push comes to shove and we're sitting there praying over big decisions for the Irvin family, I'm the one spiritually responsible to say, I really feel this is where the Lord's leading. Does that mean my wife just sits there and says, whatever you say, dear? No. I trust my wife's opinion. And if she comes to me and says, I really think you should rethink that and pray about it, by golly, I do. But when it has to be make a decision, I'm the one where the Lord says, James, you're the one responsible for this. It doesn't make me ultra-powerful. It means I'm the one responsible to it. But look here at Ephesians 5.21. We all submit to one another at one time. See, the next verse is Ephesians 5.22, and this is the one every guy knows. Wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. They forget to go back one verse. See, Sometimes in my marriage, I submit unto Dawn because I stop, I see what she's saying, and I realize, you know what, what she says makes sense. An example that I've used before is uh, there was a pastor's get-together. This has been a few years ago. She was pregnant with our second son, and there's a pastor's get-together down on, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was down on the Ohio River. It's like four, four and a half hours away. And she was just a week or so away from having the baby, and I said something about, oh, there's an ex-pastor's get-together. I'm going to probably go down there and do that. And she looked at me, and she goes, no, you're not. I said, well, this is what I do every month. The past, you know, We get together, we pray. She goes, that's like prime baby time. She goes, you're not going to be four and a half hours away. And you know, I could have stopped and put my foot down and said, woman, don't hinder the work of the Lord. Now, that would not have gone well, but I'm just saying I could have done that. And I could have said, this is where I need to do and you submit. I stopped and I thought, you know what, she's right. I submit unto that decision. That's wisdom. That's more wisdom than what I had. And the problem is, if as a husband or as a man, you have this negative output of, well, she doesn't know anything. Well, then, gosh, God was really stupid to bring you two together. Because God says that wife that he brought to the husband is a helpmate. And the Lord really messed that one up. No, there's a lot of wisdom in there. So when we look at this word submission, this is not a dirty, ugly word. Jesus set the example for this. We all submit to one another. But there comes time and a place in a marriage 
where sometimes the man just needs to step up and be the leader and say, I prayed over this, I've sought the Lord over this, and this is the direction we're going. Now note the words there. I prayed over this, I sought the Lord over this. See, when, when the man leads spiritually, it's really easy for the wife to sit back and say, wow, he's seeking the Lord on this, I trust his decision. If the guy's not seeking the Lord, he's like, I don't know what we should do, let's just do this. It's really hard for the woman to submit unto that because there's no godly leadership being shown. So what happens, women, if you're married to a guy and he has no utter godly leadership in any way whatsoever? Is God giving you the green light to every time just put your foot down and say, you don't know what you're talking about? No, because look at the rest of verse 1 there. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. God says, let it go. Let it go? Let this guy make these horrible, stupid decisions? God is saying in this situation, unless the husband is asking you to do something that's unbiblical or goes against God's word, that sometimes you just need to step back and say, let him lead, and if he leads us down the wrong path, that the Lord is still going to take care of us. I have to trust that. Is that a difficult thing to do? Yeah. You know what's even more difficult? is me for a man to do that counseling to a woman in that situation. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do out here at church is when I get the woman call me on the phone, and she is stuck in a bad marriage. She's a godly woman trying to do what's right, and she's married a bum, and she has. And I look at some of these guys, and I look at some of the guys they're married to, and I just think, wow, Lord, what are you doing? But then... I stop and I say, well, and they're, they're talking about it. And they're like, Pastor, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this anymore. I, I can't go another day like this. And, and I hear that. And I, I always say, hey, do you got your Bible handy? And they said, yeah. And I said, do me a favor. Turn to 1 Peter 3. And they're expecting some great answer. And we get to verse 1. And there's just silence. And I usually sometimes hear, you don't know what it's like. And I don't know what it's like. I'm very blessed. I don't know what it's like. But I know the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word tells me right here that if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, sometimes women hear this verse and they take it as some type of guilt trip. Well, my husband's not saved and it has to be my fault because God's word says right here they can be saved by my conduct and since he's not saved, I'm obviously not doing something right. No. People come into my uh, office a lot for marriage counseling and one of the first questions they ask is, can our marriage be healed? I said, if you have two people that are willing to heal your marriage in Christ, your marriage can be healed. If you only have one person that wants your marriage healed, probably not. That's truth. It takes two people to make the marriage work. And so what happens right here, wives, you could be the greatest example of Christ. I hope your husband wants to come to know the Lord after seeing you walk with the Lord. I hope he does. And the truth is, I've seen it happen. There are couples out here at church that 10 years ago, when we first started talking to them, that man never would have stepped foot in church. He never would have done anything with God, and now those men are serving out here at church. What a neat thing. Go talk to Richard and Betsy about the beginning of their life and their marriage. What a neat example of 1 Peter 3, verse 1. We all think Richard's a saint, but Richard would be the first guy to tell you about his past. It's neat to see this in action, and there is fruit that comes out of it. Is it an easy road for gals to do? It is not an easy road. And I'm not going to sit up here and say, Oh, ladies, just live the life, and your husbands will come to know Jesus. I hope they do. Is it going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. But you're producing fruit for eternity. J. Vernon McGee has a real neat story about this. Because what happens is, and I've met women like this, they uh, don't have a husband that's saved. And by golly, they're going to get their husband saved. They're going to do absolutely everything they can to get their husband saved. And it's really neat because if you look at this passage one more time, it says that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Without a word. I just want to share this real quick. If you're not familiar with J. Vernon McGee, I absolutely love the guy. Straightforward. Gotta love it. Real quick, just real quick story. Lady came to me when I was a pastor and said, Dr. McGee, I bring my husband to church every Sunday. She was the kind of woman who could bring her husband. She was a dominant personality. 
She continued, quote, He is not saved, and every Sunday I think he'll make a decision for Christ, but he doesn't. On Monday morning, I sit at the breakfast table just weeping and telling him how I wish he would accept Christ. When he comes home from work in the evening, again I just sit there at dinner and weep and beg him to accept Christ. Dr. McGee says, I got to thinking about what she had said. How would you like to have dinner every evening and breakfast every morning with a weeping woman? I wouldn't care for it myself, and I'm sure you wouldn't want that either. So I called her up and said, Suppose that for a year's moratorium, you simply do not talk to your husband about the Lord at all. She said, Oh, you mean that I'm not to witness? I said, No, I didn't say that. Dieter says that if you cannot win your husband with the Word, capital W, then start preaching a wordless sermon. How about your life? What kind of life are you living before him? I want to tell you that put her back on her heels because she wasn't living as she knew she should leave, live. But she agreed to my suggestion because she did want to win him, and she was a wonderful woman in many ways. I was amazed myself when in six months' time her husband made a decision for Christ on Sunday morning. A wordless sermon had won, my friend. And I tell you, there is a lot of fruit in that because I have seen that out here at church myself. I have seen women that have had a heart for their husband, and their heart breaks, and they go through that first example. I'm going to do this, this, and this and force it. It's the conduct of the wives. Now, once again, gals, if you're here or if you know somebody and you're saying, I am living the life and I'm not seeing the fruit, I must be doing something wrong. Not necessarily. Keep praying for that heart to be softened. Keep praying for your husband to hopefully come to know the Lord. And if you also look, and I think I put this verse in here, if you look at under the quiet witness of the wife there, under 1 Corinthians 7:16, it also goes the other way. For how do you not know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you not know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, it doesn't happen as often, but there's been times where the guy is really on fire for the Lord, and the wife doesn't care. The Lord also says, too, by the conduct of the husband, that can really spiritually impact the wife. It can make a difference. You're planting seeds. And you know what? I use this example all the time. We live in a farming community here. You plant winter wheat in the fall, and you don't get to harvest it until June. You just have to trust in those dormant months of November, December, January, February, that even though it's not growing or doing anything, that something is happening under the ground. And you know when that sun starts to shine on it, it melts it. And next thing you know, the wheat starts producing fruit. Some of you may be in a marriage situation right now where it is very dormant. You have to trust that through your conduct, through your prayers, through your fasting for your spouse, things are happening and things are changing. God is moving and working even when we don't see it. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about this part here before we move on to the next stuff? Alrighty, let's see what it says here next. So it talks about in verses 3 and 4 about the outward adornment and the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty, verse 4, of a gentle and quiet spirit, very precious in the sight of God. Once again, I want to quote J. Vernon McGee. This is a very famous quote of his. It's not that it's saying in verse 3 that you can't put some makeup on gals. It's not saying that you can't do something to make yourself look attractive, etc. J. Vernon McGee likes to say if the bar needs painting, paint it. But the point is the emphasis shouldn't be so much on the outside that you forget about the inside. I was reading a, another study here recently, and it was uh, by Chuck Smith. And he's got a great quote about this idea of inner beauty. He says right here, he says, If you would spend as much time seeking to develop your inward beauty as you spend trying to develop your outward beauty, you would have much greater benefits. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. I know people, and I've seen people and probably done it myself, where we spend countless whatever getting ourselves looking good on the outside, where, boy, how much time do we spend today in the Word and in prayer? I mean, that's not here to guilt or convict, but the point is that's trying to be said here in verses 3 and 4. You can sure look good on the outside, but inwardly not be right. I've seen gals that are very outwardly very attractive, but once you get to know them, their inward spirit is ugly. And I've also seen it the other way around, too. What matters most is where is the heart when it comes to Christ. That's why I love this passage here in 1 Samuel 16, 7. This is where um, 
This is where Samuel went to go anoint David as king over Israel. And if you remember how the story went, Jesse brought all his boys before Samuel, and there were some big husky guys, and God kept saying, not him, not him, not him. So finally Samuel said, is there any boy left? And Jesse's response was, well, there's just David, just David, just the ruddy-haired kid, David. And this is where Samuel said, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what matters most right here is this idea of the spiritual responsibilities here of the woman to live the life in front of the husband, to realize it's not the outside, it's the inside. I love that. Look at the end of verse 4 one more time. The incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. That's what God is looking for. That idea of just that godly woman that says, I'm going to live my life for the Lord. I will be a witness to my husband. I will be a witness to my kids. And I serve the Lord Christ in my actions and in my deeds and everything I say. Now, granted, is there a lot more that can be said about the role of the wife and a lot more in this area? Oh, you bet there is. Like I said at the beginning of this message, we're really just going to kind of look at what Peter just has to say here instead of trying to tackle every single passage on marriage here. So that's a quick sum up of what Peter says about the role of the wife in marriage. Any quick questions about that before we move on to the husbands here? Okay. Verse 7, look at the husbands. Husbands also likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And I'm not just saying this from a man's perspective, but when you really study out the role of the husband in marriage, he's got a lot more responsibility. You know, the Bible says he's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's a big responsibility. I remember distinctly one time I was meeting a guy that was going through a tough marriage. We're meeting at Bob Evans over in Defiance. And we were sitting there going through the different roles in marriage. And, I, and, and if you really look at it from the biblical perspective, the wife's role in marriage is to respect, honor, and submit. That's, that's what she's called to do. The husband's role in marriage, he's got verse after verse after verse after verse. So we were going through that. And I said, okay, well, you know, as a man, God has called you to do this, this, and this. And he stopped me. And he goes, well, what's her role? I said, well, her role is to respect, honor, and submit. He goes, that's all? I said, well, I said, yeah. He goes, this is not fair. I remember him saying that. This is not fair. He goes, it's all about me. And I said, in some ways it is. Because women generally react to the men. This is why it's so important for men to be godly leaders in what we do and say. Because look at here, verse 7. Husbands, dwell with them. Now let's just stop and look at that word dwell. Dwell. It means unified, united as one. And I put the verse in there in Genesis. is about a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. This is what I see a lot of times. And it's not, I, I, I hate making these statements. I've heard teachings on marriage before where they make these statements. All men are like this. All women are like this. That's a bunch of baloney. I have not seen that before. I have seen generalities. Generally speaking, the men struggle with this one more than the women. The women have this vision, this mindset of a house and a home, and we're going to get together and we're going to play house. The men, hey, you want to get married? Let's get married. Then they get married, and they still want to go out every Friday night with the guys. They get having a couple kids, and they wonder why they still can't do what they used to do. They're married men trying to act like a single guy. This is why I think it's very fascinating when the first things that God told men in verse 7 is you need to live with them, dwell with them. What a silly thought to start out with. What's the first thing you want to tell a husband about marriage? Hey, guys, you need to live with your wife. What a stupid thing to start out with. But a lot of men still just want to act like the caveman. I want to go do what I want, when I want, how I want, and whatever. And I just expect that wife to be ready for me when I get home, and she's going to have everything ready and all this type of stuff. No. Men, when you get married, you are now unified, united as one, emotionally, spiritually, physically with your wife, and that therefore you have a responsibility to the family and to each other and that unity that happens there. And what are you supposed to do with that unity? Look at the next one here. You're supposed to honor the wife. Honor. Find her valuable. Proverbs 18.22, I think I use this passage every time I do a wedding. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
Men, if you're here tonight and you're married, you are blessed. Now, the Bible does not say she who finds a husband finds a good thing. It is not in there. I'm telling you that right now. Men are blessed with their wives. It's a helpmate. And one of the things that God has asked us to do is to honor the institution of marriage, to honor our wife, treat her valuable. That's what that word honor means, is to obviously see the value of who she is in the Lord. And a lot of times when you start seeing marriages go downhill, why? The husband quits honoring his wife. He quits looking at her as valuable. And so therefore, she doesn't seem valuable. She doesn't feel valuable, and it leads to different problems. Look at the next one here. As the weaker vessel... And being heirs together of the grace of life. The big funky phrase. Heirs together of the grace of life, weaker vessel. I like what it says in the New Living Translation. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift in your life. See, here's the thing, spiritually speaking. I'm responsible for the urban household. When I die and I stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ... One of the things I'm going to be looked at is how did I do as the spiritual leader of the house? I'm responsible as heirs together of the grace of life. I'm responsible for my sister in Christ who is dawn to say, am I doing what I can to spiritually see her grow in the Lord? I always tell men, guys, we should be the ones saying, hey, let's get up and go to church on Sunday. We should be the ones saying, hey, let's pray about it. We should be the ones to say, hey, let's, let's get into the Bible and read. Too often, and I don't want to mince again, I'm not making a grandiose statement here, generally speaking, a lot of times it's the wives saying, kids, we got church tomorrow. Make sure you're up and ready. And they're the ones going in, waking up the husband three, four times in a row saying, we've got to get up. We've got to go to church. We've got to do this. It's the wives that come to me quietly saying, I wish my husband would read the word with me, would pray with me. I wish the husband would do something spiritual. Why? Because they're looking for that guy to be heirs together of the grace of life. They're looking for that spiritual leader in the household. And men, this is not given to women. It's given to us. If we mistreat our wives, look at the end of verse 7, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's a pretty big statement. That's a really big statement. That word hindered means literally to cut off. It's like you're talking on the phone and you drop the call just like that. What, you're basic, what it's basically saying is, James, if you want to come to me in prayer, come to me in prayer. He goes, but if you're not treating your wife with the respect and being the spiritual man you're supposed to be, it's really hard to listen to what you have to say because the primary responsibility that God gave me is to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And after that, it's to receive those five boys, hopefully raised in Christ. And after that, and I've said this from the beginning out here, then it's Harvest Fellowship. I love this church. I love absolutely everybody here, and I would do anything for this church. But dawn's one, kids are two, and the church. Because what happens here, what God is trying to tell me is, I want to be that spiritual man, that spiritual leader. You know, for a husband to mistreat his wife by not loving her properly or leading her in Christ, God says it's a sin. And God help us as men to do a better job of doing that, which then takes us to the verses we started out with in verses 8 and 9. There's going to be difficulties in marriage. There just is going to be difficulties. And God reminds us in verses 8 and 9, compassion, love, tender-hearted, not returning evil for evil. Wow. Marriage is tough. Marriage is very, very tough. But at the same time, what an absolute blessing it can be because it's the closest thing you see in the Bible to a relationship with Christ in action. Because it's a picture of us loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And that's why I think Jesus takes marriage so seriously because he says, men, you're supposed to be an example of me. That's an amazing, neat picture there. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about marriage um, or anything that we talked about here tonight? I think people are afraid to ask because if they ask a question, it's hinting that they don't have a good marriage. So, oh, so now all the hands go up. Yes, surely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is kind of important there. And one of the things is, and is it's tough for us to talk about because it sounds like it's being disrespectful and it's not when it talks about the woman being the weaker vessel. Once again, in generalities, 
you know, a lot of times the women is a little bit weaker just emotionally and allowing things to get to them. And sometimes that's where it's our responsibility as men to help be that responsible person and say, hey, let's see the big picture here. That's why it's so important as men not just to sit there and say, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, whatever you say. Uh huh. No, to get in there and be that spiritual leader and say, okay, I see you're bothered about this. Let's pray about this. Let's seek the Lord over this and being there. Anybody else have anything they want to say? Now, real quick, this is what I'm going to finish with. Obviously, if you're married, pray for your marriage. Pray for your spouse. Pray for you guys to go deeper in your walk and relationship with Christ. That's obviously vital. Number two, if you're not married and you see marriage in the future, pray for your future spouse. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Pray that the Lord is already preparing him or her to be your perfect mate in all ways. And when you look at these passages, this time of not being married is a time for you to spiritually prepare yourself to become that man or woman that God has called you to be. That's why it's so important to talk about marriage. Even if you're not married, that you can say, okay, this is what God expects out of me as a husband. This is what God expects from me as a wife. Start praying for that. Or start saying, okay, this is what God expects out of a husband. So why, so gals, you look for a godly man with those type of qualities. Now, if you're past the point of marriage and you don't see marriage in your future, and you may say, what am I supposed to do with this information? I'm willing to bet you probably know somebody who is married. Just pray for marriage. Marriage is obviously under attack, and pray for the sanctity of marriage. Pray for those getting married. I think we're doing seven or eight weddings out here at Harvest this year. Pray for all those couples. You, you've been married. You know how difficult marriage can be. Pray that marriages are founded in Christ. And this is the last thing I'll share. Almost every wedding I do, the verse I like to use is 1 Corinthians 3.11. No other foundation can anyone lay other than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I always talk about how the only foundation of a life is Christ, and the only foundation of a marriage is Christ. A life not built on Christ won't last. A marriage not built on Christ won't last. Christ has to be the foundation of life and marriage. Pray for people. That's what you can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we pray for those that are married, that we would be the godly men and the godly women you've called us to be. Lord, for those that have marriage coming up in the future, Lord, maybe soon, maybe in years, we don't know when, pray that you'd bring the right godly mate at the right time and that right now you're preparing them. Lord, for those that are going through a difficult time in marriage, we pray for them, that you'd strengthen them, uplift them. I pray for every man here and every man hearing this that is married, that he would be that godly man and that godly leader you've called him to be. I pray for the women, they'd be that godly wife that you've called him to be, and that the people would be blessed in what a true marriage in you is. And we lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.